Good morning. Uh, my wife, she, we were getting ready this morning, and she asked our daughter Adeline, my three-year-old, she said, do you want to go to the nursery today? Adeline looked at her promptly and said, no, I, I want to listen to Brian preach. Pastor Brian preach, actually. And Leslie informed her that she wouldn't have that privilege, and she looked confused. So, if you don't know me, I'm Samuel. I'm on staff with crew, and I'm actually under care which means I'm under the guidance of the pastors here at Manhattan Press, and they're overseeing my training for the, the ministry. So we won't be picking up in Luke. I think Brian's going to pick up next week in Luke again. And this morning, we're actually going to be in Jonah. Uh, the first chapter, we're just going to kind of do a 20,000-foot view of the first chapter of Jonah. Jonah's a, a small book in the Old Testament. It's actually four brief chapters. It'll take you six or eight minutes if you read it out loud. And it chronicles the story of a prophet who's running from God, much like a a rebellious adolescent teenager who'd run away from home. And so Jonah was that prophet, and he was the prophet during the time of King Jeroboam II. Uh, We find that information, if you're wondering where I got it, in 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 through 28. If you go and read 2 Kings 14, what you'll see is God showing compassion to his people in the midst of their rebellion. The, the king that Jonah was under as a prophet did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And yet the Lord remembered his promise and refused to blot Israel from the face of the earth, is what 2 Kings 14 says. So Jonah's a prophet during a time in Israel's history where they're not seeking to obey God. Uh, This means Jonah has firsthand experience of God's mercy and compassion. And so you have Jonah, the prophet who's experienced God's grace, not wanting to extend God's grace to others, specifically the Ninevites. And what you need to know about the Ninevites is that they were a wicked nation located roughly 500 miles to the northeast of Israel. They're part of the Assyrian Empire, which had a terrible history of involvement with Israel. The Assyrians the had taken the Israelites into captivity before Jonah's lifetime, much like uh, modern nations w- would still hold wounds in their heart from a previous war. Jonah would have similar wounds in his heart. So that's the backdrop of this, this very short book. Jonah, a prophet who's experienced God's grace, being called to extend the message of grace, to a people he doesn't like. And so, meet me in Jonah chapter 1. If you're looking for it in a printed Bible, it's sandwiched between Obadiah and Micah, and it's towards the back of the Old Testament. And we're just going to read the first six verses this morning, and then we're going to pick up the rest of the story as we walk through. So, Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But... The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, 
And each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a thought to us that we may not perish. We'll stop there. Um, the grass withers, the flower fades. Pray with me. Father, we come before you today to, to hear from your word. Uh, please use this first chapter of Jonah to nourish our trust in you. Help it recalibrate our love and hope for our neighbors. And please let it kindle in us awe and reverence for your compassion and mercy. Jesus, we ask that we would follow your pattern of obedience. Spirit, we confess our need for your power and guidance to do so. So please open our hearts and direct our wills so that you'll be honored here in Manhattan and Riley at large. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Was there a time in your childhood where you ran from your parents or hid from them? I have vivid memories of doing this as a child. I'm one of nine children, I'm number four, and I can remember many a day that I did not do my chores. I would know that my parents would be home at a given time. I would know that I was supposed to have the trash out, my room picked up, and the living room vacuumed. And yet, I would be sitting there playing GoldenEye 007 on Nintendo 64 when I would hear the screen door creak open. And instantly my, my stomach would drop and I knew it was too late. So I did what any little kid would do, I hid. I had two go-to locations, one under the bed and one in my closet where I would promptly cover myself with a fallen blanket or coat and I would wait for my parents to walk into my room and I would hear them call my name and sometimes I'd whisper, I'm here. So that way when they asked me later, I would say, I responded, right, to cover my tracks. But have you ever wondered why is our natural tendency to run and hide when caught in disobedience or asked to do something we don't want to do? Why is that our natural tendency? And I'm not merely talking about children. I wish I could tell you that my tendency to hide and run left me when I left my childhood, but that is not the truth. Just ask my wife. I mean, I, I wish I could tell you that that was just my childhood, but it's not. In our house, it, it usually starts with the phrase, um, Samuel, have you noticed? Samuel, have you noticed is the phrase before the rebuke. Uh, Samuel, have you noticed when you tell a story, you tend to leave out the information that makes you look bad? Or Samuel, have you noticed when Adeline does this, you tend to respond like this? Right? Right, my wife's usually pretty gracious. She usually follows that with a, why is that? Right? She's like inviting me into the rebuke trying to get me to self-incriminate myself. Um, and I, I wish I could say that I always responded in a godly way, but it's not true. 
A lot of times I try and self-justify or I get defensive. And the reason is, is because there are pockets of adolescence in my spiritual life, even in adulthood. Even as an adult, my tendency is to run and hide. Right? Adolescence is that period of time between childhood and adulthood where we haven't fully embraced maturity. And we all have these pockets of spiritual adolescence. Areas where we've yet to embrace spiritual adulthood. And, and our knee-jerk is to still run and hide. Still, even as adults, we run from God, just like Jonah did in these first six verses. Right? We see Jonah's adolescence in verse 1 and 2 on full display. Right? Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Right? Jonah has received a direct word from God. God did not whisper this command. There was no stutter or lisp. There was no impediment here in God's speech. It's a crystal clear word from the Lord about what he's supposed to do. And yet, what do we see Jonah do? We see him flee. Right? Verse 3, but Jonah rose. Right? He, he actively rises up to flee to Tarshish. Why? Because he's fleeing the presence of the Lord. He goes down to Joppa. He finds a ship going to Tarshish. He pays the fare and goes down into the ship and goes to Tarshish. Once again, away from the presence of the Lord. I asked earlier, why, why is it our natural tendency to run and hide when caught in disobedience or asked to do something we don't want to do? Well, the reason is that that's our natural tendency is because we're sinners, just like Jonah. And it's the first thing you've got to see in this passage. You've got to see that sin traps us in spiritual adolescence. You've got to see the adolescent nature of sin. Sin does not want you to grow into maturity. And, and sin wants to separate you from the presence of God. Twice in verse 3, the author emphasizes Jonah's flight from the Lord being a flight from his very presence. Just like the rebellious adolescent who runs away from home and refuses the loving care and wisdom of his parents, Jonah flees from the Lord. He is the adolescent prophet. And he finds himself in the middle of a tremendous storm because of his disobedience. A storm that he brings on himself. Right, that's what verses 4 and 6, they highlight the effects of Jonah's sin. Because Jonah is defying the Lord, God appoints a storm and sends it upon his boat to discipline him from his sin. And we see the effects of Jonah's sin. They're really clear. One, he's, he's cut off from the presence of the Lord. Two, he's on his own dime. He's responsible for what's about to transpire. Right? Do, do you catch that in verse 3? He pays his own fare. The Lord isn't bankrolling Jonah's disobedience. He's responsible for his sin. And the third thing we see is that Jonah's sin isn't private. It affects those around him. Right? It, verses 4 through 6, Jonah's sleeping in the bottom of a boat in the midst of a storm that he caused with no understanding that that, that sin is causing upon the people in the boat with him. But it's clear that that's, the effects of sin are not private. So the first 
application from this text that we got to take from this is that we got to acknowledge that our sin traps us in spiritual adolescence. And we got to begin to acknowledge the areas where we're still wrestling with indwelling sin. Spiritual adolescence prevents us from doing two things in particular. One, loving God. And two, loving our neighbor. I mean, do you see that in Jonah's life? Right? He can't love God because he's fleeing from his presence. And secondly, because he's fleeing from God's presence, he's not loving the mariners in the boat with him. He's drugged them right into a storm. And just like Jonah's sin, our sin prevents us from growing into spiritual maturity and experiencing the love of God as we were meant to. And because we're trapped in spiritual adolescence, we fail to obey God's word and we fail to extend God's love to our neighbor. Not only does Jonah blatantly ignore God and head west towards the Mediterranean when God told him to go east towards Nineveh, he does it because he doesn't want to obey God's good command of going and loving the Ninevites. He does it because he resents them. I mean, that would become more clear in Jonah chapter 4. But it's safe to say that Jonah's harboring prejudice and hatred towards the Ninevites. He loves his people and himself far more than he loves the people God has called him to love. So we've got to begin to examine ourselves. Where is sin trapping us right now, today, in spiritual adolescence? Where are those pockets of spiritual adolescence in your own life? Perhaps you could ask, who's the Ninevite in my life? And whoever that Ninevite is, whether it's uh, the, the Republican or the Democrat, whether it's the urbanite or the rural farmer, whether it's the classmate sitting next to you in Chem 101 or the neighbor in the apartment next to you, God's calling you to love them. And he's calling you to extend his message of grace to them. And we have to recognize that the adolescent nature of sin because if we don't, we'll never embrace maturity. Sin will never lead us to a place of strength. It'll never lead us to maturity. Expecting sin to take us to a place of strength is, is a lot like expecting to be able to train for a marathon by only eating chocolate. It won't work. You will not have the nutrition that you need to run the race. So we got to acknowledge our spiritual adolescence. Right? And, and how should we respond to it? How do we get out of spiritual adolescence and embrace spiritual adulthood? Well, let's pick it up in verse 7. Let's continue the story here. And we'll read through verses 13. Because I think part of the answer is actually here. So this is verse 7, right after the captain of the ship woke Jonah from his slumber. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, 
the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you've done to us? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then he said to them, What shall we then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. So when we pick it up here in verse 7, we see these mariners and they're panicked. They're desperate and they're terrified. They do not want to die. And they've done everything within their physical capabilities to save their own life. They've been throwing things overboard. They're rowing furiously. And they're out of options. These pagan sailors are so desperate that it's their desperation that drove them to go grab the foreigner who's not a sailor, who's asleep in the bottom of the boat because perhaps his God can save them. I mean, do you see that in verse 6? They're not even confident. Right? They say, arise, call out your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Right? Can, can you feel the weight of the storm here? Can you feel the weight of their desperation? I mean, this is, this is the equivalent of Tim Dirt asking me how to solve a biochemistry problem. Right? You have a religious person in the bottom of the boat, and you have sailors coming and asking for advice. Tim is never going to seek my advice in biochemistry, rightfully so, right? So when we look at this passage, you've got to see that these men, they're desperate. It's really easy to read this story and not think about, they don't know how this story ends, right? They're terrified. This isn't a game for them. It's really a powerful scene in our story. If you can step back and see what the author of Jonah is doing here, He's painting a picture of how we try to save ourselves in the midst of the storms of life that are life and death. And this is the second thing you've got to see in this opening chapter. You've got to see the the adolescent folly of self-salvation. You've got to see how it's impossible for us to save ourselves. Right? Contrast the mariners and Jonah. Right? You have Jonah, the the religious prophet sleeping in the bottom of a boat and pagan sailors working feverishly to keep the boat afloat, right? And and the author of Jonah, he brings these two worlds together, right? And he climaxes the tension in, in a really deep irony, right? You have a pagan sailor waking up a Hebrew prophet and pleading with him to cry out to God because their efforts are not sufficient, Do you see the irony? Hugh Martin in his Geneva commentary on Jonah says, he titled this section, The the World Rebuking the Church. Jonah, the prophet of God, who's given words by God to go and speak to the pagans, is being woken up by pagans, and the pagans are pleading with him to offer a word to God on their behalf. Right? You have both Jonah and the mariners And they can't save themselves. They're both 
shown to be at the end of the rope. The religious and the irreligious. Jonah's checked out of his spiritual journey and he's running from the Lord actively. Right? You, you see that in verse 9. Right? The first thing Jonah says is, I'm a Hebrew. And, he said, and then he says, I fear the Lord. And then he confesses the Lord's character. Right? He's, his belief is as orthodox as it comes. He's getting the right answers, but he, he's not trusting in them. And then you have the pagans who are just completely clueless about who the Lord is, rowing feverishly. Right? They, they hear Jonah's full confession of the truth, and what do they do? Look at verse 13. They row harder. They double down on what hasn't been working for them the entire time. Do you see the, the, the adolescent folly of self-salvation? Immaturity will never produce enough strength for you to save yourself. Spiritual adolescence will never satisfy you. So the second thing we have to acknowledge here is that self-salvation is it's a cul-de-sac of misery and futility. If you're trying to save yourself, you're going to be miserable. So coming back to the the question of how do we get out of spiritual adolescence and embrace spiritual adulthood? Well, it's not through yourself. It's not through your own efforts. Whether they're religious or irreligious, you can't save yourself. Whether you're Jonah or the Mariners, you don't have it within yourself to save yourself. We see Jonah trusting and his Hebrew identity, and we see the mariners trusting in their false gods and their sailing abilities. And neither work. Trying to save yourself is like standing on Manhattan Hill and trying to jump to Kansas Hill. You will never make it. And, and you may outjump someone else, but neither of you will ever come close. So, Ask yourself, as we begin this new year, where have you been actively looking to save yourself? Where have you been actively looking to find your sources of security and worth? Where are you functionally putting your identity? Because where you're trying to earn God's love and blessing through whatever those things are, they will ultimately fail you. They cannot get you through the storms of life. So it could be in your religious life. It could be through your bank account. It could be in your children. It could be your parenting style. It could be your health or your looks. It could be your career. If you're a student, perhaps it's your GPA. We can look to a myriad of good things for our security in life, but ultimately, none of them has the power to deliver us. It doesn't matter where you're looking. So how do we get out of spiritual adolescence and embrace spiritual adulthood? Well, not through ourselves. We must look to something outside of ourselves, which means we must embrace confession and repentance as the avenues for spiritual maturity. Look at verses 14 through 16 with me. 
It says, therefore, <clears throat> therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Right, these mariners turned from their striving, and they cried out to God. And they obeyed him. In a word, repentance. They turned from their striving and threw themselves upon the mercy of God. And if we were to look back a little further to to verse 12, we would hear Jonah's confession, the seeds of his confession, where he openly admits that he is the problem. And he gives himself up. Confession and repentance are the avenues for spiritual maturity because they bring us back to, a, to God and they lead us away from our own strength. And the good news is that he's a gracious and compassionate God. And he's the gracious and compassionate God that we all need. The, the good news here is it doesn't matter how deep of a sleeper you are or how hard you can row. It doesn't matter how great the storm in your life is. God's grace is greater than your sin. And it's greater than any storm you could ever experience, whether you brought that storm upon yourself or whether you're in that storm because of someone else. Right? Whether God's grace comes to you in the form of a storm or in the, the form of a fish, like we'll see in verse 17, His grace is sufficient. His grace, is enough, his grace is enough to engulf every aspect of your sin and bring you through. Right? We see it clearly in verse 17. Here's Jonah being tossed into the sea. That's what he deserves. And yet, what do we see? And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. God appoints the fish to save Jonah. And if you were to look in verse 4, you'd see that he appointed the storm to save him as well. The Lord is actively pursuing Jonah the entire time. And the good news about our God is that whatever he appoints, it comes to pass, and it's for his people's good. Both the storm and the fish point to God's love for his people. And as Christians today, we know this in greater ways and with greater clarity. We know that God's pursuing us in the midst of the storms of life in greater ways and with greater clarity because there's a greater Jonah who's a far better sacrifice. Talking about Jesus. I mean, think, think of the story in Matthew 8, 23 through 27. It's the story of Jesus sleeping in the bottom of the boat. You see him sleeping in the midst of a storm in the bottom of a boat. I'm beginning to hear the parallels here. And the men of little faith come and wake him, 
And they cry out, do you not care that we're perishing? Does this sound familiar? And what does Jesus do? He stands up and he calms the storm. He says, peace, be still. And instantly the storm stops. Just like the storm we see here in Jonah. And you know this is, this is Jesus. He's, he's riffing on the story of Jonah in so many ways. Specifically because of Matthew 12, 38 through 41 and, and Matthew 16, 1 through 4, where Jesus applies the sign of Jonah to his own death and his own resurrection. I mean, listen, listen to the entirety of Matthew 12, 38 through 41. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Right? The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Right? Unlike Jonah, Jesus doesn't throw himself in the sea. No, his storm would be at Calvary, at the cross, where he would drink the wrath of God on our behalf for the storm we created to bring us into the presence of God. See, confession and repentance are the avenues of spiritual maturity because they bring us to Jesus, who has the authority to bring us into the presence of God. It's in this union with Jesus that we experience life as it is meant to be. It's in that union with Jesus that we can faithfully obey God. So, you know, as we begin this new year, we must repent and trust the grace of God freshly. Our call today is to, to fear the Lord exceedingly and offer our lives as living sacrifices where we live and play. Just like we see these mariners do in verse 16. For the mariners, it was on a boat. For you, it's where you find yourself today. Your primary calling is to forsake yourself and throw yourself upon the mercies of God. To, to love God and to love whoever your Ninevite neighbor is. If you're going to make a resolution this year, let your resolution be this. That this year of your life would be marked by repentance and trust in the grace of God freshly. Let that be your resolution and push into whatever pockets of spiritual adolescence that are still in your life. And press on to spiritual maturity by the grace of God. If I were to, to put this sermon in a sentence, it would be forsake spiritual adolescence and embrace the grace of God that is sufficient for all your needs in the storms of life. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is enough for us today because Jesus is greater than any of our sin and he's greater than any of the storms of life and Jesus is the greater Jonah. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for this first chapter in Jonah. I thank you that you don't leave us in the storms of life alone, but that you entered the storms of life with us. 
I thank you that you've called us to, to share your love with our neighbors, and I ask that you would make us a, a witnessing community that is quick to repent and mirrors your heart for the world. Spirit, please cause us to take your heart to the neighborhoods of Manhattan and Riley at large. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.